0: So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open and I'll read through the passage and try to explain and encourage you this morning. Second Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse one. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. "'And the king said to Ziba, "'Why have you brought these?' "'Ziba answered, "'The donkeys are for the king's household "'to ride on, the bread and some are fruit "'for the young men to eat, and the wine "'for those who faint in the wilderness to drink.' "'And the king said, "'And where is your master's son?' "'Ziba said to the king, "'Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, "'for he said, "'Today the house of Israel "'will give back the kingdom of my father.' "'Then the king said to Ziba, "'Behold, "'all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours.' And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Behirim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gira. And as he came, he cursed continually. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, Get out! Get out! You man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given back the kingdom into his hand, your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Nabashai, the son of Uriah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse the, my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Uriah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him too. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite them and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. And Absalom said to Hithophel, give your counsel, what should we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and all the hands of who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went in into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike him down, only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace." And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel of Ahithophel has given is not good. (laughs) Hushai <laughs> said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night in, with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that Israel be gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, and sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is found there. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel, for the Lord has ordained, excuse me, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus. And so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimahaz were waiting at Enrogel, and a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man named Behirim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain onto it, and nothing was known of it. Then Absalom's servants said to the woman of the house, "'Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan?' And the woman said to them, "'They have gone over the brook of water.' And when they sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem." After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went home to his city, he set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. And David came to Menaniam, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel, and now Absalom had set a mesa over the army instead of Joab. The mesa was the son of a man of Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Jehuriah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Menaniam, Sobi, the king of Nahash, and Riba, the king of the Ammonites, and Maker, the son of Emiel from Lodibar. And Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalium, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, I need your help this morning as we look at your word. I confess that apart from you, I, I can't do anything. Please give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we may see wonderful things about you, your character, your grace in this story. Help us to be encouraged and equipped to do the good things that you have called us to do in response to this passage. We affirm and we believe all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. We want to be built up, complete, equipped for every good work. Help us to enjoy you through the story to enjoy your grace and your presence with us. Help us to worship as we listen and eat and drink and sing in response. And in your name we pray, Amen. amen. When I first pursued the path of pastoral ministry, I was 16 years old. And before this, my plan was to go to University of Washington to be a brain surgeon, to make a lot of money, to retire early, to buy a yacht and to sail off into the sunset. That was my life goal. I was competitive. I wanted to help people. I thought, who's at the top of medicine? In my mind, it was brain surgeons, so I want to be a brain surgeon. And at a winter youth retreat, the speaker shared with, with the, the camp that I was at that when an individual decides, when you place your faith in Jesus, it's a whole heart decision. It's not, <laughs> it's not a little bit what you want and a little bit of Jesus. It's, it's all of Jesus, And it's not as though you simply trust him with your afterlife, but the trust includes your present life. So it's not as though following Jesus, it's kind of like ensuring a fire insurance life policy. When you die, you won't go to hell. That's why you believe in Jesus. It's no, Jesus has Lord of your whole life. So the, the pastor is sharing this and following Jesus means he's not only your savior, but your Lord. Following Jesus means that your life is no longer about yourself, your self-absorption, your self-centeredness. It's to be turned from that and given your life to Jesus and his purposes for your life. Being humble, other-oriented, growing out of self, growing more in love for God and love for others. He's, he's sharing this message and it just struck me. I was self-centered. I was more self-centered then than I am now, but self-centered, self-focused. It's all about me and my life. That was my plan, and the best I knew how, I prayed, God, not my will, but your will be done. Take my life, use it. <laughs> and I got this foreign desire, it was strange to me, to teach the gospel, teach the Bible, and love God's people. And you know, I was the, I was, I'd like to be in the back of the room, I was the quiet kid, socially awkward, homeschooled. You, you guys could have imagined, right? <laughs> Still get nervous to preach, open the scriptures, I felt like God called me to open the scriptures and teach people about Jesus. And I've been on this journey ever since to study and learn more and to share what God is teaching me, to proclaim the good news about Jesus through all of the scriptures so that the church is built up in love and good deeds. And one of the things that I was confronted with early in my journey of studying and trying to teach the Bible is this idea of God's sovereignty, of him ordaining things. guys with me? his ordaining of all things according to the counsel of his will. I, I think one of the ways you can think about growth in the Christian faith is growth out of self-centeredness, right? Growth out of, life is about you, and you're growing and in, in being more other-focused, growing in humility, thinking of yourself less. And I had a very self-centered view of how God worked. He was more like a grandpa in a recliner. He, didn't, he wasn't active. He was there like if you needed him, you could go and talk to him, but he was going to kind of stay in his recliner. And I started reading and hearing about God's ordaining, God's pursuing, God's initiating, God acting. And it was uncomfortable. It was offensive. I remember the first time I heard a pastor explain grace as sheer grace, as in nothing you did deserved God's showing you grace. It was his act, his initiation, his work alone. Like, you weren't good enough. You didn't clean up your life good enough. It was him. That was offensive. I, I hated that message. I, I, you know, I, I was kind of determined to prove him wrong. So I read the Bible in like two months, three months. Just blew through it. And I was like, wow, God is huge. God really does what he wants, when he wants. He does ordain. Not to ignore our choices. Not that our choices don't matter. But I had been taught that and believed the importance of humanity as moral agents. We make decisions, those decisions are real. But for God to get involved in that was very humbling. And if the Bible presents God as this all-sovereign God who's complete control of everything, I mean, why do anything, right? If there's a God who rules the world and nothing happens outside of his decree, it kind of confronts our individualistic American attitudes, doesn't it? Proverbs 19, 21 says this. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. See what that's saying? Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the purpose of the Lord will prevail. (laughs) The God's purpose isn't, you can't change that. That's standing, that's gonna prevail. Jeremiah 10, 23 says this. I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself. That it is not in man who walks to directs his step. It says a man's way is not his own. No one who walks directs his own steps. So God is talking about God's direction, his initiation, his act, not only over the ends, but also the means. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp writes this the Bible teaches us the true validity of the secondary agent. You guys get that? Does that make sense? <laughs> he explains it. He, I just I love the way that's written. It's like, okay, the true validity of the secondary agent is. <clears throat> the way that God establishes his already ordained plan is through the validity of our choices, our actions, our belief, our faith, our obedience. The means is part of his plan. So God is so big, so powerful, so all-knowing, so almighty, that our choices that are very real it's not like there's a giant robot who's just orchestrating. We're making real choices. We are moral agents, but he, he knows those. <laughs> you like, you understand that? You understand crazy things like the Trinity, like God becoming man. That's wild. Doesn't make sense to me. Kind of makes my brain hurt. But the way that the sovereignty and the ordination of all things is presented to us in the scriptures is primarily to the church as a means of comfort as a way of humbling us, growing us in trust. As Joseph tells his brothers, recorded in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. That's what they chose. They chose evil. They, they were planning evil against him. But look, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Some, some Bible scholars will say that this is kind of the summary verse of Genesis. What we meant for evil, God's gonna use for good. Why We, we, we wrecked. The creation was sitting against him. We're rebelling against him. But God's going to use that rebellion for good. It's crazy how he can do that. So we don't have to be afraid of the future because God holds us, right? We, don't, we can look forward to what God's had for us because he has good things planned. We, just, we sing about it. Like we really believe that. He works all things together for, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So when we, I, I begin the introduction this way because when we come to 2 Samuel 17, 14, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring upon harm to Absalom. I wanted to show this in the context of how the scriptures talk about the sovereignty of God. It's comforting. It doesn't excuse responsibility or choice or obedience or prayer. It empowers it. You guys with me? I find it comforting to know that God's purposes will stand, that he is against those who plan to do evil. He's ordained their destruction. Evil people, they might have planned evil against me, but God's gonna use evil. He's gonna use all things for his purposes. He has a plan. So I feel like I'm just barely scratching the surface of this very complex and controversial issue. If you'd like to talk more, let's talk, right? Let's get a burger. Let's go get some pizza. Let's go get some food, some barbecue, some pho. Mm, Food, yes. Our coffee, our tea. Send me an email, Daniel at the Mountain Church. I'd love to meet up and talk. Okay? So, the reason that I want to highlight this, we know from the context of the story, Absalom has been against God's anointed king. He's rebelled against his father. And there's two things that you can always count on God doing at all times. You know these two things? He's opposing the proud. He's giving grace to the humble. Or you wonder how God's at work in your life? You can bank on these two things. He's opposing the proud, he's giving grace to the humble. He's humbling the proud, he's exalting the humble. He's resisting the proud, but he's giving grace to the humble. But you're saying, Daniel, I'm not very prideful. That's not for me. I mean, I'm insecure, I, I can't stop thinking about myself and how I relate to others and how I'm not measuring up and how I'm not good enough. I'm not living the good life that I deserve. That's Pride. You're saying pride is not simply thinking of yourself as better than others, but it's also thinking of yourself as worse than others. Pride is knowing your place. You're under God. You're equal with others. It's not just self-elevating. It's also self-deprecating. Pride is really the focus on self. So, well, yeah, (laughs) well, I'm prideful. Really prideful. So, well, I'm not prideful. I mean, I complain a lot, but I'm not prideful. So, what is complaining? show what's at the root of complaining expressed discontentment lack of gratitude to god for the good things he's given you i deserve better and as a result i'm going to tell you about all the things that have gone wrong in my life so that i can receive a kind of false comfort in you listening to me and saying oh sorry <laughs> your life sucks i want a false kind of comfort for not getting the things that i want say "Oh, well, i'm not prideful I just complain. Well, those are against each other. You're prideful, you complain. Absalom has demonstrated great pride. So let's not distance ourselves from people who show pride, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> those two things, I could go into a little more list. Let's keep, keep on, shall we? You guys with me? Okay. Absalom has demonstrated great pride. He, he thinks he can rule the kingdom better than his father. He's been undercutting his father, dishonoring his father, Stealing the hearts away of the people. So the Lord in his judgment and discipline of Absalom, because he loves David, he loves the people of Israel, he wants the people of Israel to flourish, he won't allow this pride and wickedness for long in this royal leader. So he has planned, he has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. He planned to bring harm, to oppose Absalom. This is what we see in the story. The Lord opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And the Lord opposes Absalom. He listens to bad advice this advice that he listens to is ultimately gonna lead to his downfall. David, on the other hand, is presented as someone who, although he's deceived at first, he's ousted from his throne, he's cursed on the way to the wilderness, he's provided for by neighboring nations. The Lord is preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies in the wilderness. So from 2 Samuel 16 and 17, we see the great wickedness and injustice and tragedy, but we also see how God is at work in evil, in, in the darkness, We see that the Lord doesn't forsake his people. He's promised to defeat our enemies. We see the the fruit of faith of someone who trusts in this kind of God. And we see how David points forward to Christ, who is God's ultimate good news of triumph over evil. That's where I'd like to go this morning in the time we have left. So you could think about the story 16 and 17 consisting of seven different themes. Seven, David and Ziba on his way out of Jerusalem, David and Shimei in Beherim, David, Absalom and his council in Jerusalem, the reporting of that council to David, David crossing the Jordan with his company, a quick look back at Ahithophel, and then we're back at David in the wilderness. And that's where we're covering the last, these two chapters. So it starts with David and Ziba. is leaving Jerusalem. He's passing beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives. He's going up and Ziba, who was the servant of Mephibosheth, the servant of Saul, Jonathan, so it's at Saul's family, bringing him gifts. Donkeys, provisions, summer fruits, wine. And Ziba tells him, my master, Mephibosheth, he's back in Jerusalem. He's actually planning to overthrow you. And, and he wants the kingdom to be restored to his family. Now, this is not true. Mephibosheth is not doing this. Ziba is being deceitful. It's important, to, right? We cross-examine. We don't listen to gossip and slander. Proverbs 18:17 says, the one who states his case first seems right <laughs> until the other comes and examines him. So, Ziba's being deceitful. And it, it's kind of surprising. David doesn't even really ask. He doesn't go say, well, let's go get Mephibosheth, see what, he's, what his side of the story is. He just says, okay, all that was Mephibosheth is now yours. <laughs> it's like Ziba just deceives him. He's like, yeah, have all this stuff. Like, wow. Was he just in that kind of like emotional state that he wasn't really thinking clearly? He's fleeing his son. What's happening here? What kind of wisdom is that? David is, is deceived. And then it's after that scene with David and Ziba, this, we're introduced to this character named Shimei, the second scene. And King David comes to Behirim, another man of the family of the house of Saul. He's he's cursing him. He's throwing stones at him continually. He says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. This is super strong language that Shimei is using. Worthless man is, like the old King James calls it sons of Bilial, his wickedness. Godless. the people who were called worthless men were horrible people up to this point. So 1 Samuel 2.12 is the same word. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know God. So worthless men are people who don't know God. In Deuteronomy, it's worthless men who want to lead the people of Israel astray to worship other gods. In Judges, it's worthless men who want to come to the house of a Levite to gang rape his servant and sexually abuse him. This is the kind of word that, that Shimei is using against David. So you can see why his men would be offended. He so said, why is this dead dog cursing you? Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? I, I love the way that's worded. Let me go take off his head. <laughs> no one should curse the king like this. Let me shut up this yapper and decapitate him. Headshot, Right? But look, David doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't, he doesn't say, listen, chump, the Lord's forgiven me, stop that. I'm already forgiven. Why are you reminding me of this? When we sin, when we commit evil, there's consequences of that. It's like David's accepting those. He says, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done this so? Behold, my own son seeks my life, How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. There's a real sense of humility and acceptance and brokenness you see in David in this. Isn't there? Listen to what David says. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and threw stones and flung dust. So you get this image of kind of shimmy up on the hillside and David's walking and he's just kind of kicking dust, throwing rocks at him. This is not how you treat the king. But David is not retaliating. He's entrusting the situation to God. If you trust in God's character and his promises and if you entrust your enemies to God, you'll say what David says, right? It may be the Lord will look upon this and he will repay me with good for this cursing today. It's like with that, the scene ends. We now go back to Absalom and Jerusalem. The scene sifted from David. Ziba, is getting cursed, back to Absalom. And uh, Hushai convinces Absalom, you know, even though I was the friend of David, and even though we know the backstory of this, David has told Hushai, hey, be a spy for me. Go and listen to the king's court. Convince yourself that we're with him, but, but you're really with me so that I can kind of know what's going on in the, in, in the, in the throne, in the courts. And uh, who shall I convince is Absalom? No, he's, he's really with Absalom. He says, what I, what I, as I served your father, so I will serve you. He's using the words that David instructed him to tell. And Absalom's convinced of this. And he asked Ahithophel, whose advice is considered like advice from God. Like he's esteemed highly by David and Absalom. And Absalom, and advice is sleep with your father's concubines so that everyone will hear you become repulsive to your father. You've insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation. That's what they're saying here. And in so doing this, they will throw their support to you. And that's what he does. He goes up to the roof. It's probably this, this from the same place where David saw and lusted after Bathsheba. And this happens in the sight of all Israel. And Hithophel's advice continues. And he says to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I'll go and I'll attack just David and I'll kill just him tonight. I'll throw him into a frenzy and this will be taken care of. David's dead. All the loyalty is gonna go to you. This problem is gonna be resolved. And for whatever reason, Absalom goes, Hushai, what do you think? I mean, I know this, this guy's counsel is considered counsel from God. What do you think? Do you agree with that? Speak. And Hushai says, this time the counsel is not good. And he goes into this graphic imagery of David being like a bear robbing of his cubs. And we don't just need to go after David. We need to wipe out the whole army. He's almost, in a sense, appealing to the pride of Absalom. And he's saying, let's light on him like dew. Let's just fall upon him. He's going to go into a city. We're going to surround that city with ropes, with siege hooks, and pull it down, pull down the walls, and storm the city. He's talking about an all-out war here, not just one man's death. He's maybe appealing to Absalom's visions of grandeur. Like, let's show, let's have a war. Let's show them who's boss. gather the whole army as sand is by the multitude. And they're using these, this vivid graphic language. He's starting to put seeds of doubt that Ahithophel's counsel is not good. David's going to be ready. this ah, is a strong warrior. He's going to defeat his plan. And, and if this plan doesn't go well, then the support that you thought you had is going to go quickly away. It's going to be a slaughter. So then everyone agrees. Hey, Hushai's counsel is better than Ahithophel. Absalom sent to all the men of Israel, verse 14, the council of Hushai the Archite is better than the council of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You see how the Lord is working in this way. He's not, it's not like they're consulting God. He's working through this. So we shift scenes again, and this time the news of this council of Ahithophel is reported to David. The priests, Zadok and Abiathar, they relied the message to Jonathan, and it's not recorded that the, like, what the advice is taken. They're just saying, this was the advice that was given. These two options. One's going to be trying to take you tonight. The other's going to be gathering this whole army. So you just need to get out of here. Leave the Jordan. Cross over the Jordan. And the scene goes back to how Hathaphil responds to his counsel not being followed. He saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey. He went off into his own city. He set his house in order and he hanged himself. And we're not told, you know, did, did he commit suicide because he was so embarrassed? That for so long his counsel was followed, and now here comes this, here comes this guy out of nowhere that just now he's everyone's gonna listen to him. Did he believe that that Hushai's advice was so bad that it was dooming the plan for from the beginning? Like there's no chance of this, of Absalom kind of coming to power. This rebellion's gonna be squashed, David's gonna be king again, and he knows there's no chance of defeating David, so I might as well just end my life now before David ends it. We see here that I think opposing the plans and purposes of God brings about a kind of suicide, the choice of death. It's suicidal in a sense, sin is. It brings, it promises life and joy and flourishing, but it just leads to death. Chapter 17 ends with David having the surrounding leaders of the nations bring him provisions. They know those with David are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness, and they provide for David. And it's kind of setting the scene for chapter 18, which is then gonna be the war between Absalom and David. So what can we learn from the story? These, this story that I think I, I presented the chapters together because I think it's, it's kind of one unified story of these two chapters. And I think we can learn from in the story, we see that the Lord's promises are true. His justice will come to pass. And in words of judgment and in promises of life, the word of the Lord is True. One of the consequences of David's evil when he committed that evil with Bathsheba and against Uriah was there was going to be trouble in his house, wickedness in his house. And David is confronted by the prophet Nathan who says this to him in 2 Samuel 11:11. 11, 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. It's not much longer. A couple chapters later we're told a tent is pitched and this is what Absalom does in the sight of all Israel. And in that promise of judgment, we also see in the story that the Lord doesn't forsake or abandon his people. Even though it seems dark and bleak, he has promised to defeat the enemies of his people. Ahithophel's counsel was good. This council was regarded highly. Yet it was the Lord's plan, it was the Lord's grace to defeat what it says there. It doesn't say, I'm going to make Ahithophel's counsel bad, so everyone's going to see. It says, no, I'm going to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Like, I'm gonna show my power, my might over Ahithophel. I'm able to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Hushai's counsel was not good. It's gonna lead to Absalom's defeat and death. God ordained to defeat his good counsel. And we see David is presented as an individual who trusts, clings to rest in the sovereign God of grace. And it's in this promise that he rests. And we see that God's word rings true he takes the cursing of Shimei. He rests upon the goodness and the grace of God. Second Samuel 16, 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What would cause a king with his mighty men, men who are asking, David, this dead dog, let me take off his head. No one should talk to you like this what would cause a king to not repay this kind of evil with evil not to retaliate not to get back not to show him who's boss right the opportunity was there yet it's almost as if in silence he's enduring this insult these rocks this dust being flung at him what would cause that i would say the only thing that would cause that is faith in faith in god faith in yahweh faith in the goodness of the lord god almighty that Evil never ousts God's good purposes. John Whitehouse writes this Evil never thwarts God's good purposes. Neither is evil ever justified because it is used by God for good. But the Lord is able to take evil and with it to achieve good. Shimei's cursing of David was a consequence of David's evil, yet David depended upon the grace of God. You won't forgive. You won't repay good for evil. You won't silently endure cursing without this kind of faith. Husbands, why don't you repay love when you feel disrespected, dishonored, underappreciated, or belittled by your wife? You don't have this kind of faith. When you're working hard for your wife and kids and it feels like whatever you do is not good enough, you're not appreciated, she's even cursing you, you're not appreciated. What will cause you not to lash out, not to retaliate? I'll I'll, I'll show her. What will cause you not to retaliate? Faith that the Lord sees, he hears, he cares, he will reward, he will repay, he will do good, right? Without this kind of faith, interactions, conflicts will be a series of retaliations and reactions and revenge, Seen husbands justify their addiction to pornography because their wife is not sexually available or interested. Wives withholding themselves, dishonoring, undercutting their husbands because they don't feel loved and owed what they deserved. It's retaliation, isn't it? Maybe you've never had someone throw rocks at you, fling dust at you and call you a worthless person, but these principles still apply. Oftentimes in our close family relationships, our interpersonal relationships, social media interactions, your thoughts, your day-to-day interactions, your driving habits. <laughs> we might not have someone, yes. There's a band out of Portland called Beautiful Eulogy and they have this song called Messiah. And the lyrics read this. The saddest fact is that I, seek, I search for satisfaction as if I lack it when in fact I lack nothing. That's the reason for my lackluster prayer life and my lust for distractions it's so easy to see in hindsight. I must confess it's the mess I acknowledge when I'm stalling on my responsibilities and don't apologize but make excuses. Like my physical exhaustion is a license for narcissism and speaking recklessly without caution, I often wonder why am I so awkward in conversations, wishing I could switch places envious of others because my envy is a reflex of my ignorance because I don't know the details of their daily existence. I assume I carry the weight I carry is the heaviest. And we compare ourselves, we, we think that we're owed something, that we're entitled, we have that pride. It, it's going to lead to retaliation. It's going to lead to responding to evil, our perceived evil, our perceived slights. Our, maybe the person didn't even mean it as an insult, but we're going to interpret it as an insult and we're going to retaliate in whatever kind of maybe relational pattern that we were growing up with. Maybe we're someone who's really aggressive and we're gonna get in your face and we're gonna tell you about it. Maybe someone we're we're scared, we're maybe more passive, we're gonna withdraw, we're gonna stonewall you. When you rest in the grace of God, the promise of the reward of God, you don't need to justify yourself and retaliation and the desire for revenge and getting back and showing it just starts to lose its power. When someone attacks you, you don't immediately have to defend. You could start to see where they're coming from, and they might even be right. Maybe I'm not as awesome as I think I am. (laughs) Maybe I'm not as loving and as serving as an other-oriented and as patient as I think I am. It's far easier when someone confronts us to justify, defend, or to retaliate. Just me? And church, I think the more that we see that there was was a king to which David pointed. There was another king. A king who was cursed on his way out of Jerusalem. There was another king who was cursed and insults were hurled at him and he was dishonored and disrespected. He was stripped naked. A crown of thorns was beaten upon his head. He was mocked. Nails were driven through his hands and his feet. They made fun of him. And as those who were maligning him, insulting him, cursing him, were spewing what they were spewing, he looked at them with grace and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In love, he stayed on the cross. He suffered the death of a criminal He was sentenced to death for those, the kind of death that you would receive if you had treason against Caesar, against the king. And yet it was all of us, it was all humanity who were those who committed treason. All of us who treasoned against the true king, the God of all things, the great I am, Yahweh, the creator. And yet it's this true and powerful king who became a suffering servant, the one who had all the right Like if anyone could respond and retaliate and be totally perfect in doing it, it would have been Jesus. And he said, I I forgive them. I love them. He returned good for evil, forgiveness for bitterness, love for hate and indifference. And it's from this act of grace and mercy as we're captured by God's grace in Christ to us that our hearts begin to change and are shaped and are molded to be more like Jesus. This is what Peter writes to the church. a church that was suffering and being persecuted. It says, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continually entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of, overseer of your souls. This is the appeal of Peter. This is the appeal of the New Testament authors. Look at what Christ has done and respond and live according to that. Christ died that we might die to unrighteousness. The unrighteousness of wanting to get back when someone sins against us. Wanting to one up, wanting to in our pride, show that we're actually better than that. We're actually better than you. And when they heaped abuse on him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, when I think about this, in the good times, (laughs) you know, our emotional brains respond quicker than our logical brains. Just like breathing techniques are actually helpful because of that. When I respond so quickly emotionally, a perceived slight from Stephanie and I I feel justified to get angry and harsh and lash out at her, and I think about this, man, that seems so trivial, doesn't it? It just has a way of just, just loses its power, that just, Father, help me to think more about that. Stephanie's not against me. So that's oftentimes just my interpretation. I assume intentions. Prideful. Pray for me. <laughs> when we think about, Jesus didn't retaliate when he was insulted. He didn't threaten in revenge when he suffered. He, he left his hands in the case of God who judges fairly. And it's different than David. Like David, this was a consequence of his sin. Jesus committed no sin. Perfect. And he did this for us. So then I, I, it's in response to what he has done that we love, we entrust, we, we humble ourselves. We pray, Father, Would your heart for sinners, like you had on the cross for your enemies, would that be more of a reality for me as I grow and learn, amen? As we're captured by how much he loves us, how much he has forgiven us, we will be changed to forgive and love others. And as we sin, and as we respond poorly, we can return to Jesus and ask him for help. Man, I messed up. I did not handle that well. I've been prideful. Father, help me. I believe I trust you. Oppose the proud. Thank you for opposing my proud. But I'm prideful. I'm not joyful. I'm not loving. I'm not other focused. Thank you for opposing me in my pride. Give me grace to be humble. We pray that. Let's pray that now. Father, thank you that while we reviled you, we cursed you, you return this cursing for blessing. Jesus, we confess there's consequences in our life that that are good and right because we have been foolish, we have been self-centered, we have done things contrary to your will, yet you are still so gracious to us. We confess that we have been deceived, we have been influenced by gossip, by slander, by lies, by deceit, we have been influenced in this grand view of ourself, we have wanted the glory for ourselves. we have been prideful, and thank you that you call us to yourself and you cause us at times painfully, but you humble us. I've seen how you've humbled me in the past. I see how you're humbling me. Now, I, it's, it's awesome that you will continue to humble me going forward because this is in the humility. I'm learning more about your grace towards me. I'm learning more about the power of your love and I am becoming more freed and joyful and peaceful and other focused. Thank you for your work. Would you do this in our church, Father? Thank you for ordaining, for initiating, for working. You're not the grandpa in the recliner who gets involved just when we ask you. You you initiate, you care, you respond, you move, you plan. Father, we're prone to leave you. Pray that you'd bind our hearts to you. Thank you that while we were straying like sheep, you pursued us. You took the initiative and you have called us to return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Help us to be witnesses and examples to your grace as we seek to repay good for evil. Help us to trust and to have faith that in what you've done in Christ and what you've promised to do in the future, justice will come, wickedness will be dealt with, but we're leaving that into your hands, Father. Help us to trust and entrust others to you and trust our circumstances to you and trust our life to you. We We love you and praise you. In your son's name we pray, amen.